Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Seth Rodney. Seth, how you doing? I'm okay. Yeah, I know you were a little bit rushed today, and so we were scrambling to get uh, get the podcast in. So uh, today, we are going to talk about uh, a concept called context collapse. Uh, and I first encountered this uh, idea in some like random kind of social media article or article about social media and like what Twitter means and what people who use Twitter mean, et cetera. And uh, so I did a little bit of poking around and, and found out that this idea uh, called context collapse uh, was coined probably by a guy, an anthropologist at Kansas State named Michael Wench. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to read you just kind of a really brief in, uh, excerpt of what context collapse means. He, he, he riffs on it uh, uh, pretty productively here, I think. Um, and you can, we can kind of talk about it in more ordinary terms. He's talking about uh, sort of the various ways in which we normally interact with each other as people is, you know, we are enmeshed in a world of contexts, right? So our bodies are contextualized, right? I can see like, you know, so Seth and I are on a, a webcam right now, so I can see him nodding. So that gives me like context, like, oh, okay, he's following me. And, you know, maybe if we were disagreeing, you might see someone like square their shoulders or like, you know, like look really, uh, uh, you know, in, in more sort of caricature terms, grit their teeth or something like that. Um, but a lot of times, the way a social interaction goes is based on a whole host of things that have absolutely nothing to do with what's coming out of my mouth, right? It's just not about what it is. Like we we feel a certain kind of trust or concern or anxiety. Um, I actually wasn't going to bring this up, but the thing that I, to me like illustrates this most potently was uh, when that deputy in Florida, I think it was about four years ago, pulled over that driver, African-American driver, white sheriff's deputy, and told him to get out of the car and the driver complied and then the cop shot him. Uh, the, the, the driver, the black driver was 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 com- was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. But the way I read that is that there was something so threatening and so anxiety-provoking about that stop for that officer that he fired his gun out of anxiety. Probably not malice, but just just fear. To me, that is an example of actually what we're going to talk about today, which is, is context collapse. And this is the way that Wench describes it. Now, look carefully at a webcam. He's talking about how we present ourselves in a social media age once context has been taken out of it, right? So Steph and I can see each other. We know each other really well. But anyone that's listening to this, I've probably never met you, right? So you are coming to the podcast with a host of ideas and conceptions about what you're going to hear, what you're ready to hear. This is about that. That's there, he says, of the webcam. That's somewhere else. That's everybody. So he's saying the way in which the webcam kind of collapses all of these particulars. On the other side of that little glass lens is almost everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of, and even those you have never heard of. In more specific terms, it is everyone who has or will have access to the Internet, billions of potential viewers, and your future self among them. Some have called it at once the biggest and the smallest stage, the most public space in the world, entered from the privacy of your own home. Through it, we can reach out to a next-door neighbor or across the world, to people we love, people we want to love, or people we don't even know, to share something deep or something trivial, something serious or something funny, 
to strive for fame or to simply connect. That seemingly innocuous and insignificant glass dot is the eyes of the world and the future. The little glass lens becomes the gateway to a black hole sucking all of time and space, virtually all possible contexts, in upon itself. Meaning that you sit down in front of a, and fill in a webcam with any, it doesn't, we're, he's talking about a webcam, but that can be sitting down in front of your Twitter feed, sitting in front of your Facebook feed, sitting in front of uh, a Quora article, sitting in any situation in which you are having to represent, right, present yourself again in whatever way you conceive of that outside of the context that you are most familiar with, which is your body in the world interacting with other bodies. That is context collapse, and it is wrecking havoc with the societies and cultures that we currently live in. Now, Seth, I want you to, I actually thought of this topic in particular when you were on Morning Joy, uh, Joy this past weekend and you were talking about something. So you don't have to talk about that, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious for you to have you wait uh, to weigh in. Okay, so um, the show is actually called AM Joy. Oh, sorry, and thank this you. Would, no worries. Um, Morning Joy is probably probably something she wouldn't <laughs> object to. Um, um, uh, and this was Joy Reid on MSNBC. She had me on, um, I think it was not this past, right, not this past Sunday, but the previous Sunday, to talk about the situation with Kehinde Wiley uh, and the controversy stirred up by his unveiling uh or the rather the the cho- actually the choice of him as the official um uh uh portrait artist for obama's um presidential portrait mm-hmm. um and i won't go into what i talked about there very much but um in terms of feeling what you're talking about, what it's like to not have much context to be speaking into a series of monitors or a series of cameras, rather. Well, actually, I mean, I mean, maybe that that situation is a little bit different because I'm actually speaking to another human being. I was, to, I was speaking to Joy Reid, and, mm-hmm. and in fact, I went in thinking likely what's going to happen is Joy is going to ask me some questions, and she's going to kind of lead me through the mm-hmm. segment. And I know that she's practiced at this, and I know that she's good at what she does. So I went in with a certain amount of faith in that. Go ahead. Oh, I actually meant the when you you were t- I I led you into that very badly, very hamfistedly. I apologize. I meant your your comments about the, the history of decapitation and painting, and how that that conversation got decontextualized when they were talking about his suitability as an artist. Oh, right. Yeah, because people assume that. When he so the so the part of the controversy around his choice as um, Obama's official portraitist is that back in 2012 he had constructed um, made some paintings with black women figured holding the severed heads of white women, mm-hmm. which was a play for him, and he admitted so. A play for him on this older Caravaggio, um, and, but but and actually, yes, he, he took it from Caravaggio and, and I think Gentileschi, Gentileschi, um, Artemisia Gentileschi. But those were, but those paintings by those two artists were also based on a biblical story mm-hmm. of um, 
Is that Salome? Sa- or? Salome, that's yeah. right. Or Salome. I'm not sure. My, 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 oddly enough, my sister's middle name is Salome. Ah. And, uh, and she, we always said Salome, but mm, who knows? Um, cutting off the head of Hophernes. Um, uh, 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 I think he was a, a kind of general. Um, anyway, the point is, I think I'm getting to one, is that, yeah, people come into um, art, especially visual art, especially portraiture, thinking that their eyes should be able to tell them all they need to know about what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And my argument and this is actually this actually this argument actually comes out of a, a couple of conversations I had with Leah Yasufer, who I went to school with at UC Irvine. Uh, we had an email exchange a couple of weeks before. And, and Liat is a is a fairly accomplished painter as well. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, and she she she's well represented on both coasts um, by um, serious galleries, um, and she's a very studious painter. She has studied the medium for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we had an email exchange where she said, yes, people do ex- expect, I say, I say, I really start my criticism from the position of being in a space and looking at the work. That's where I start. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes. And people expect to be able to get all that they can out of a painting just by doing that. Mm-hmm. But they can't because it has a layered and complex history. Mm-hmm. So when you come to a painting like Akihinde Wiley's 2012 version of a Caravaggio in which a black woman highly stylized, um, lovely green gown, uh, sword held just so uh, after having judicially sliced through the neck of this woman, this white woman, and holding the head from her um, half in triumph, half in disdain, there's more to it than meets, literally than meets the eye. He's playing with these notions of power, and 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 I actually do. I think that Candy Wiley has some limitations as a painter. He's he he doesn't do certain things that I think that would make the painting his work more compelling. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he does do well is he just twists the dial, right? He t- mm-hmm. he turns it 180 degrees. We expect to see the pictures that we've been, the kinds of images we've been talking about. But to see a black woman holding the severed head of a white woman really does kind of overturn the tables, right? Mm-hmm. Like it really just, it just throws everything into uh, into confusion because it seems to say there's something valid in this. Mm-hmm. Just by say, just by presenting that image, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's something there's something there that somebody wants. Mm-hmm. Somebody wants this. Somebody wants to cut off a white woman's head. Why would we want that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the beginning of a longer and more complicated conversation. Yeah, the, 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 that makes perfect sense. Obviously, it's not just that, though, right? I mean, that's the. It's not uh-huh. just the expression, sort of gratuitous right. representation of violence. I mean, it, it comes out of a, a nuanced and powerful art historical tradition. Uh, you know, you you mentioned Salome or Salome, but it, you, it it also goes back to the Greeks. I mean, you know, cutting off the head of Medusa. I mean, this is a well mm. well.
well-worn mythological uh, artistic trope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that occurred to me when you were talking about when you were explaining sort of the context of that painting and the controversy surrounding the artist and uh, and then the the conversation with Liat about the idea that people expect to understand immediately. They expect to have access to whatever they happen to be seeing, perhaps mm-hmm. what they're listening to. They expect mm-hmm. some degree of intelligibility, particularly around areas that aren't recognized sources of authority. So I'll give right. you, I'll give an example of, of, exactly. of what I mean. Because, in, because in they would not expect no to have one... this kind of thing around. Uh-huh. Go ahead. It's like a doctor, right? If a doctor throws a number of terminologies at you about the cancer that's eating your body, you are not mad. Now, you you might be like anxious, but you are not mad at the field of study. You are not mad at that doctor's expertise. And in fact, unless you're coming from some really kind of askew worldview like Christian science or something like that, you value this doctor's expertise. You don't expect to know and have access to every piece of knowledge in that domain. Right. But particularly around the humanities now, art now, it's, there's a resentment, right? It's, it's right. this needs to be perfectly intelligible to me right now. Right. Like we don't, we don't have, we don't have the patience or uh, the wherewithal to invest. Maybe we don't have the time even, right? I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to color everyone with the same brush, but it's the same problem, right? It's, it's a lack of investment in trying to figure these things out. Right. It's, right. it's and, what you were just saying. Right. And then, then there's, there's this sort of absurd <laughs> belief that because the thing is something that so many people have done. Right. But, so I think there's this there's sort of no there's a sort of numbers game that we're playing with each other intellectually. We know that only so many people in the population are doctors. We know mm-hmm. that only so many people are quantum physicists, mm-hmm, astrophysicists. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what, what's the other? Uh, uh, rocket scientist. That, mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's just the, the ready at hand one. Rocket at hand. Yeah, right. rocket exactly. Science. Rocket yeah. science. Um, and I think we think that there are many more people who are painters and many more people who are writers. And then maybe I don't. Need, I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, they, it sounds they really like, are. <laughs> I mean, like, right. I don't know about painters, but 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 writers certainly. They're, right, they're, right. We, there's too many of us. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. But I think per, then I think perhaps what is motivating people to make the kinds of assumptions that they're making about the humanities, right? About this this particular field, this larger um, collection of studies. Is that if so many people are doing it, then surely it it can't be that hard. Right? Mm. It can't be that difficult. Um, and I'm thinking, oh right, that was the anecdote that came to me. I read this several years ago. Someone, I think it was on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Someone said something like, and he was like a, a, a someone with a particular. Training, with a set of a, a, a particular particular kind of training in a field, like he was like a, a hedge fund manager, or he, he wasn't wasn't uh, the hard sciences, but he was something like that. Mm-hmm. And he said that he wanted to take, or she, 
actually enabled woman said that she wanted to take the summer off and write a book on blah 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 mm-hmm. and the responses she got were derisive laughter i mean basically people were saying oh so you're just gonna learn how to write a book over the summer where we've been <laughs> at this for the last two decades mm-hmm. figuring out how to write Whatever, I mean, whatever it is, fiction, nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, autobiography, mm-hmm. um, travel log. And and I think their derision was was well earned. Because you don't like if no 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 normal human being, no average human being that I have met actually has just just wake up in the morning and just has the ability to articulate thoughts clearly and concisely and in a way that is actually compelling so i okay so i i'm i'm most of the way there with you most of the way i i definitely as someone that labors through the difficulty of expressing ideas clearly uh, you know whether it be in a podcast or in writing uh of course you're right of course that's absolutely true at the same time I do really think that there is a high degree of preciousness amongst humanists that I don't think is necessarily mirrored amongst other areas of expertise. And I think it is precisely because we compete over such a small sliver of the cultural pie. I I think that... mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, jump in. Go, go, go. Well, I think part of the reason why we're... We, I'm saying we now. Yeah, I'm just going to count myself in them uh, among the humanists because that is, that's that's the kind of work I do. Which we're like ten I, miles from col- uh, context collapse now, but that's okay. Right, right. <laughs> but I and and I, I'm going to get back to that. Actually, I'm going to find my way back there somehow. Um. Uh. I think we are precious about these sort of things because we don't have to defend the territory in the same way that astrophysicists do. Yeah, because okay. astroph- yeah, yeah. astrophysicists just show up and everybody knows that the work that they do is indecipherable to the average human being. But they also know that it leads to the positive acquisition of knowledge that has that yes, has accomplished that's right. miraculous things in world history. I mean, just, you know, we landed yeah. on the moon, you know, we like yes. shot You're a bullet into right. space with people on it. And landed yes. landed on the moon. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we you know we we flung whatever it was Voyager one or two you know billions of miles into space and then you know turned around and snapped a picture of ourselves like right. I, and it's not that I don't feel I mean you know up against that I would put you know Shakespeare I would put you know sort of my own um, the people that I hold close to my heart and you know mm. there's a list there um, but. I think if we're being honest, humanists in the everyday workaday cultural sphere and professional human humanists in the academic sphere sphere are not retreading the are are not productively treading on the ground that was uh, discovered by Shakespeare was discovered mm-hmm. by a long, you know, Frederick Douglass. You know, it mm-hmm. was not, I mean, it, what precisely mm-hmm. in general are we contributing? Now, I, 
you, I know you and I have had conversations around this. We do want to contribute to that, but Mm -hmm. that's the sort of preciousness to get back, you know, maybe dance one or two steps closer to context collapse, even though Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying the conversation. So it doesn't really matter that much. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, the, uh, and hopefully other people are too. So it's not just about uh, me enjoying the conversation, but uh, (laughs) some, some of some of that preciousness, as you just said, is we they don't have to work as hard for recognition yep. to uh, to be, you know, acknowledged in the community at large to be acknowledged. Uh, so but what I would want to and this is actually you 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 kind of gestured in the direction that in, in, in one of the ways that I was thinking about context, context collapses. I don't know why we ceded so much ground. Like, I don't know why humanists, like, why did we fucking retreat so far from common Mm. principles Mm. of decency and humanity and existential dread and joy? Like, why did we run so far from that? Like, Mm. why are we preoccupying ourselves with things other than our common humanity? Right, like, we, we, we keep marking out smaller and smaller plot yeah of of intellectual real estate to tend yeah um i mean and 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 let's let's actually flesh this out for some of the some of the listeners who may not know what we mean um what i'm saying what i mean when i say that is that in the from what i've observed um you know having done an mfa at uc Irvine, having mm-hmm. right worked on a phd at berkeley college in london uh, uh, you know, and and this is going back to 2001 um, was when I completed my MFA. I've seen over the time fewer and fewer humanities scholars, right? And by humanities, we mean the soft sciences. We mean the things like sociology mm. and I- uh, English studies, language mm-hmm. studies, mm-hmm. and literature, cultural and studies, poetry. things like that. Cultural studies, right? Um, I've seen. Fewer and fewer of those scholars being willing to wade into what we have called now called the culture wars, being wade, being willing to wade into Absolutely. political discussions around the policies that we make, socially, political, economic, the the kind of policies that we make, and the kinds of effects that they have on people's lives. Fewer and fewer of us are willing to show up on the various written forums, the um, news outlets, the television uh, shows to argue for the kinds of things that, as, as you just said, Travis, we sh- like what, what actually makes our lives worth living. This sort of, yeah, absolutely. This, yeah. this, this sort of, this sort of, this sort of, um, I just feel like you have you would be much more articulate on this in this moment. Um, there's something, this sort of quintessence of what it is to be a human being in this floating orb, in this unfathomable cosmos. That uh, no, that's pretty I, good. I, I, okay. <laughs> okay. I don't think I can. I don't think I can top that. That's good. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like we've over the past few decades have become less and oh, perfect example. I was just talking with someone the other day about public intellectuals. I went to a brunch on Saturday mm-hmm. actually at the uh, at the house of mm-hmm. uh, an artist I, I I do admire quite a bit, Teresita Fernandez. Mm-hmm. And she was 
she was hosting a brunch uh, about a uh, for people who were involved in a show that just opened at an NYU gallery. I think the Gray Gallery. I'm not sure, but it's about a ponte. Okay. Um, anyway, I was having a, a, a conversation with a partner, and we were talking about public intellectuals, and he said, yeah, when was the last time you saw Noam Chomsky on TV? Mm. Noam Chomsky, right, who used to be someone that people would go to and uh, to, to, to talk about, like, what our media means, where we're going in terms of the proliferation of information, that kind of thing. Go ahead. Okay, so I was going to say, so Noam Chomsky would be a perfect example, actually. You're right. People mm. stopped going to him because he stopped being relevant. I'm sorry. The, the oh. I, I was oh, okay. into Noam Chomsky's <laughs> sort of... Yeah. So, no, to me, at least, right? So, it, it, like, sort of how I would come at these problems. People were attentive to Noam Chomsky mm. and the manufacturing of consent mm. and his sort of hyper rationality. And I mean, he, he I, I, I watched him in a lecture not that long ago mm. claim that to use rhetorical persuasion to try and convince people of a position was already a betrayal of the tenets of reason. And that, 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 that strikes me as such an obtuse, ed, egg-headed approach to so being stupid. a human being and understanding right. what it means to be a human being. Oh, that's awful. Right. right. So like it's sort of like saying like expressions of love should be easily delineatable and communicated to someone right. without the benefit of emotive expression. Like right. what? Fuck you. Like it's like Wait, that no, just like, makes no it's sense. Just, it, so in like the idea of manufacturing consent and mm. and sort of the the the, the monolithically overwhelming narrative mm. about the the sort of the totalizing discourse of the United States, as if mm. the United States has single-handedly, nefariously shaped contemporary history. Capitalism right. being the right. single greatest evil ever in the history of the world. Right. Yet all of these... So I, let's bracket for a moment my serious concerns about capitalism. There are plenty right. of them. I have lots right. of them. Right. I, this is my trying to inject some context into the conversation. Right, because capitalism not, is screwed up in certain very it, fundamental it, structural ways. We know yes, that. yes. But yet, since the advent of capitalism, mm. slavery as a defensible uh, social and cultural institution has crumbled. Mm -hmm. We have cured innumerable diseases. We've mm -hmm. landed on the moon. We wrote mm -hmm. a de universal declaration of human rights. Mm -hmm. If it is such an unmitigated evil... How mm. did all of these things come about? How okay, so... We... Okay, go, okay. go ahead. Well, that's just... I want to say we need to address that in another podcast. <laughs> and we need, we need, like, we need like more people than just you, me, and Steven. Like, we're going to need, like, <laughs> that's right. well, a, float, a flotilla. A whole... <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> like, a people. Of people, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but but here's, here's a way to connect to the, to the, to the theme, the ostensible theme, to... Uh, please, please do. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Go. Well, I, I recall a conversation I had with Lawrence, a good friend of mine, Lawrence Harding, who you know. I do. Um, and now everyone uh, else that listens knows who Lawrence right. is. <laughs> um, Lawrence is one of the, the, the most intelligent people I know and one of the most 
interesting thing, Chris. And a, just a physical presence. I mean, he is just like, when he enters, I mean, the first time I met him, we were in that bar in New York. Mm-hmm. And he just like, I didn't know it was Lawrence entering the bar and I noticed him entering the bar. I mean, he is right. just like, he is uh, yeah, he's a forceful he is, physical he presence. Great, he has great presence, yeah. Yeah. Well, he said, we had a conversation the other, um, at the time when I was um, rooming with him when I just got back from London. And we were talking about differences in, in basically um, G7 and non-G7 societies. Basically, what we used to call first world. And sure, sure, world, sure. There's all these nomenclatures around it, yeah. Right. And I come from what is still considered in some circles a third world country. And sure. From Jamaica. Right, right. And Lawrence comes from Sierra Leone. And since we both live in America, we both sort of are very aware of those differences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he said that for him, the key difference was actually high context versus low context Mm. cultures. Mm. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he explained. Um, I, and let me premise this by saying, or preface this by saying, I prefer low context cultures. I am much more comfortable. and And I can illustrate this by talking about the ways that my father and I differ in what we expect from businesses we uh, we we patronize. When I go to a business, like I, like when I was driving and I wanted to get my uh, a, a tune-up, mm-hmm. I went to a Pep Boys or I went to a reputable mechanic that had branches around us mm-hmm. because I wanted to know that my service would be standardized. Mm-hmm. That I would go in and I would get this, that, that, and the other, and mm-hmm. I would pay $44.95 for, mm-hmm. for all of the above. And it would not change. Even if I went if I went to somewhere somewhere like in Arizona, if I happened to be there, I would get the same service mm-hmm. for the same price. And I could, mm-hmm. if there was a problem with the service, I knew that there was a number I could call and mm-hmm. someone I could complain to mm-hmm. and hopefully get relief. Some sort of corporate response. Precisely. Mm-hmm. My father is the opposite. Mm-hmm. He wants to go to the guy he knows around the corner who doesn't <laughs> even have a proper shop. Like he has a right. jack and he has like He found some... a muffler once. Right. <laughs> right. And he has like and he did some prison time with somebody who was a mechanic, right? Like something <laughs> right, like that. Right, right, right. Some ridiculousness like that. But he wants to go to someone he knows, someone he knows personally, mm-hmm. someone that he he thinks he has some some play with some mm-hmm. some, and Lawrence described dis- used sort of described high context versus low context cultures in that way. In that he comes from a very high context culture in Sierra Leone, it's about who you know. Like you know so and so, and so you can get this other thing done. Like mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. to know so and so who can get you this thing, so you can get the application, so you can get the visa, so you can do blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And I hate that. I hate the idea of having to know someone in order to get the thing that I need to get. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want the thing to, I want the procedures. And basically what I'm arguing for is modernity, right? Mm-hmm. Is I'm, I'm arguing for <laughs> That's right. the, the state that is in charge that gives us a set of rules by mm-hmm. which to play the game that we play mm-hmm. to know that we're on a quote-unquote level playing field. You want to inhumanize and, the the system. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, well, why I do is that I think that in some ways it's more fair, right? Like Because I know that precisely the kinds of problems that we run into when we talk about failed states is 
is is Robert Mugabe, right? Mm-hmm. Like Robert Mugabe, you only have power in Zimbabwe under him if you know someone, if you're close to his family, if you you know what I'm saying? I do, I do. Actually, it's a really it's a fantastic connection, actually, because uh, I wasn't thinking of context collapse in that direction. But you know, of course context collapse, right? It, it sounds like an unmitigated... I mean, this is another problem with... I don't want... I'm going to jump too far, but I'll, I'll come right back. But, um, this is another problem with a lot of left-wing, what we would t- traditionally call left-wing... I, I'm using air quotes for everyone that can't see the podcast, which is literally everyone. <laughs> so uh, left-wing ideologies, mm. like context collapse. Like that mm. sounds like an unmitigatedly bad thing. Right. right. Like collapse right. is rarely ever used Good. in a positive. Right. right. So right. Right. in that sense, what you just described, though, is a very positive aspect of it. And the first thing that came to mind for me mm. was um, in uh, uh, Victor Frankl's Meaning of Life. He's talking about like being in the concentration camps. And mm. um, the, do you know this concept of the tzaddik? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but these are like sort of the, they're sort of think of them as kind of saints in the world in the Jewish tradition. So these are okay. the, the kind of the pillars of the world. The tzaddik hold the world up. They They basically are the moral pillars of a civilization. And there's only ever supposed to be very few of them. Um, This is often used in kind of the everyday expression of being a serious man. Right. Oh. And you've, you've heard this term before. It's like he is a serious man. Right. Well, well, I know that Suzanne Sontag, well, one of the things that was said about her was that she wanted to be a very serious person. Yeah, this is what this is what they're talking about. And right. Victor Frankl talks about. So these people in the, in the chow line and these concentration, the most unspeakable conditions, you know, in in the history of the world. I mean, you got to put it right up there with the Mafia, And I mean, you know, the mm. Holocaust, I mean, really mm. terrible, awful things human beings have done to each other. Mm. And. He's talking about the when they they serve the food, right? That if you got in line and someone in your barracks or a friend was doling out the food, oh yeah, they would scoop down to the bottom because the very limited nutritional content that was in these big giant vats of food was at the bottom, right. and so they would scoop way down to the bottom, and you knew that you were going to get a a good portion. Right. But the men that he had the most respect for were the ones that never lifted their eyes and only and only stared at the pot and ladled from the middle of the pot for everyone. Wow. That this kind of commitment and discipline wow. to decontextualizing the doling out of food, literally probably wow. the last meals on earth for these people, wow. right? Wow. That's fucking context collapse. Like that like the fact that you are taking an embodied real world situation and not using the cues that are that surround you right i mean there need to be some like there need to be some there are clearly some differences here from what wench is talking about but they are not um they're they're more differences of degree than of kind i would argue yeah. and yeah. this is i mean and I agree with Frankel's assessment of that. I mean, can you imagine the commitment to your ethical principle to not look up and see mm. like maybe your brother is in line mm. or maybe the guy that gave you his last cigarette is in line? Like Jesus. that that seems <sighs> to me to be a very potent example of what you're describing, right? You wanna yeah. you wanna go somewhere where they have normalized, they have made it a normative requirement to treat everyone 
the same way, which is to say respectfully, right? Not to treat everyone the right. same way, the way like you would have been treated in the South in like, you know, 1895 no, no. or something right. like that. No, like no, that's... No, that... Go ahead. And, that, and, and that's precisely, I mean, that, that, that story almost brings me to tears. That's, wow, that is a, that is a serious ethical commitment. Um, I think part of the reason I feel the way I do about standardization of treatment is that I'm a black man. Mm, and I grew up mm -hmm, in, in, in mm -hmm. this world in the, mm -hmm. in, at the time that I did. So I'm constantly, I was thinking about this today, actually, that there is, there's these ways in which the, I, a therapist, my therapist back in LA once described it to me as duck bites. That mm. little, it's not like someone takes a huge chunk out of me every day, mm, but mm -hmm. they're little things. And they mm -hmm. just kind of slowly erode my humanity, right? Like it's just like being online in, in, in the queue rather, uh, at a supermarket and having chosen my like pastry on the way to work and having the bag closed and having the woman in front of me, white woman, same thing, pastry, bag closed. And the guy mm. asks her, uh, uh, what's in the bag? And she tells him and rings it up. And then he... He wants to check your bag. He, he started to open my bag. Mm. He didn't even mm. ask me. Mm. He's, oh, as he was asking me, he's like, oh, what's in the bag? And he's opening mm. it. I'm like, you just dehumanize. You just why? Why? Why am I different from? So, mm. duck bites, right? And someone yeah, today, yeah, yeah. someone today, literally, when I was just coming, uh, getting, uh, uh, finishing my workout at the Y, who um, said to me, "Oh, okay, congratulations! I saw that you made uh, employee of the month." I'm like, "No, I don't work here." And I went <laughs> oh to the poster God. in the hallway oh, no. and saw the guy. And the guy's like at least 30 pounds bigger than me, uh, like at least. But he has, you know, he has locks and he's black and yeah. anyway. Yeah. So duck bites, right? I prefer being in a, in a, in a mm. culture that is very low context because I want to know that the treatment I will encounter will be standardized. And I you, want know what, to know you know what motherfucker wants high context? The guy right. sitting in the Oval Office right now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, that is one of the things that I really, that mm. I, I, I wasn't necessarily going to say, but it, it, it has occurred to me every time I th I've thought about this. Everything about him mm -hmm. is he, he wants people he knows. Have you heard this, this silliness, this ridiculous, I mean, I want, I'm running, I'm running out of words to, to talk about the absurdity that is this presidency, but he wants the guy who's his personal pilot to I run the it. FAA. I yeah, mean, I it's it. just, it's just, it's just stupidity after stupidity. But the point for him is to get people who know him, right? Mm -hmm. Like who he, who he knows, mm -hmm. who he can trust to, uh, to carry out the, the, the bullshit he does in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I I think that there's no probably at this moment in time there's no more eloquent an argument for normalization standardization of procedures mm -hmm. so that so that when we get a monster like him mm -hmm. in a position of power we have things in place that check mm -hmm. him yeah yeah I mean the the yeah I mean I you know yeah we could very easily. Uh, that's a pretty long road to go down. I mean, mm, and, and, and we don't probably deep we, rabbit hole. Yeah, 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 we don't have enough time to talk about him or that in that context. Uh, right. No, no pun intended. Um, the, you know the the last piece of that though, the last piece of sort of thinking about 
what a context collapse might mean or how it's represented or how it's discussed or talked about. Mm-hmm. To, one of the things that the conversation has actually led me to is, is a much more hopeful um, position because it seems to me that humanists, right, that's you and me and that's people that have spent their lives reading books and poems and plays and novels and consuming things in a thoughtful way. This presents a tremendous opportunity for us because Mm. on the other side of that context collapse is not knowing a guy that can set things up for you and actually just doling things out from the middle in a fair way, in 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 a way that is judicious and ultimately far more human and far more compassionate. And I think that it's your job and my job and the people who are like us and have the privilege to have the leisure time to consume the things that we consume to imagine that better version. Like, fine, let the let the webcam collapse the shit out of everything. Let Twitter do it. Let Facebook do it. Let it all collapse down. And what's left are just let's be human to one another. Right. Let's make an ethical choice. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. To commit I to love that. that. Yeah. Um, all right, so are we are we stopping? We're actually stopping on an up note, I think, for, for a change, rather than letting it trail off into ellipses so, <laughs> or, or oblivion. <laughs> yeah, really, really. Uh, Seth, uh, thanks very much for uh, joining me today. Yes, thank you for inviting me, Travis. Okay, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone.